So I may need to introduce myself to you this morning. You're used to seeing my son Brian up here. But uh, he invited me to, to preach this morning. No, I'm kidding. It is so good to be back with you. And this is just from sabbatical. I've never done it before, ever. As a matter of fact, quick, quick reaction. Uh, no, no way. Raise your hand. No, absolutely not, Brian. Do not do that. No. How many like, no, I like it. Yeah, it's good. Wow, okay. I have not had anyone think I'm 30 years old with this. Because my color comes out, I guess. So, uh. Anyway, it is good to be back from my three-week sabbatical. And I think I've told you the number one question I've had when I tell people that I've been given this three-week sabbatical to kind of take a time out for my normal ministry obligations and reconnect with God in a special way is, what do you do? What do you do? And it's slightly varied each time that I get to do this. But this time, I just thought I'd tell you, I got to go to a Bible lectureship at my alma mater, Harding University, and I I didn't speak at it. I just attended classes and was filled up by some great lectures there. And then I spent some time, as I always do, in silence and solitude. I went to a monastery in Pecos, New Mexico, and it rained most of the time I was there, but it was still a wonderful time detoxing from people and from noise, which is a little nerve-wracking at first, you know, but, but worthwhile. And then this last week, I spent three days with a good friend of mine who's my roommate in college, but he's also a mentor type in my life. He's a, he's a certified counselor and professor. He's got his doctorate in psychology, and he, he works at David Lipscomb University as a professor and, and runs a counseling center. So I had my own personal shrink for three days, and that was really good, and I need it, and along with some other things. And I just want to thank our wise shepherds, uh, for allowing us this kind of thing as ministers. I want to thank my coworkers, both on staff and not on staff that filled the gap in some of my obligations here in ministry and to you as well for um, giving us that. Our hope when we take these sabbaticals is that it benefits you as much as us, just as the people that have been charged to mobilize us according to the mission of the love first mission of Christ. So we hope that you get um, some refreshment from us as we get that refreshment from God. But it is always just as refreshing. It's always refreshing to take the time out. It is just as refreshing coming back and being with you. You are a great family. And um, that is always, uh, always noticed by us when we're absent. And one of the blessings we, that's very obvious from our sabbatical were these, these guest speakers we had these last three weeks. Were they not incredible? I've talked to all of them um, after they came and they were equally blessed by you and it is so good for us to uh, without taking anything away from our focus on each other within these walls in our love first agenda is to remember that the love first mission of God involves people outside these walls here locally and on the globe and so that was really great now personal note before we launch into this new sermon series that I'm doing Uh, In your bulletin, you will see an invitation to you for you to join me and Carrie for a special wedding shower and reception for my oldest son, Shade, and his new wife, Emma. It will be Saturday, November 19th, okay, in the middle of the day. It's going to be out at that nice meeting hall at Hidden Falls Ranch. That's a special place to Shade. He grew up there, but it's special to Emma. He asked her to marry him there. And so, and that 
venue is more affordable. And I know it's a bit of a drive. It's a bit of a drive, but it's an easy and nice one. And especially if you compare it to the drive you would have made if you went to his actual wedding in Prineville, Oregon. So uh, we are eager for you to meet Emma, but I am just as eager for her to meet you, our church family here. So please feel personally invited. We're going to have a big party out there. There's going to be plenty of food and fun, but what we're most looking forward to is the fellowship, watching the fellowship between our kids and our church family. So feel invited. Now, one thing, you must RSVP. We're planning food and all of that. And um, you must RSVP by the 29th. So we're just six days away from that. Look, the QR code is in the bulletin. You got to work at it a little. It's kind of small. You have my permission to do it right now. Right now, while I'm preaching, you're free to do that because I really care about you being there uh, because it's personal. So thank you for that, and I know that they will be blessed getting to meet you. There's the website in there, too, and kids are welcome. Kids are welcome to come out there, too. All right, so before I get started on what's going to be, Lord willing, a four-week series, I'd like to just pray. Let's bow. Father, I just want to invite all of us here before you to give everything and everyone to you. And with that, we consecrate to you, Father, everything we're about to do. We consecrate our hearts, consecrate our minds, our understanding, our body, our soul, our spirit. God, we consecrate this room, this sweet fellowship that we share in around Christ, and this series, God. I just want to bring this series into your love and into the kingdom of God. We surround it with your love and your kingdom authority. Holy Spirit, come and fill everything we're about to talk about. And in the name and authority of Jesus Christ, I command any principality, any power in this dark world, any authority or spirit, any lie, any liar, any lying spirit, I just command you away. You've got no rights here, and I pray all that in the name of Jesus Christ. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Help us to take our stand in the way that you have instructed and called us to in scripture in Jesus name we pray amen so what was that about so in addition to the three big kind of events I did on my sabbatical I did some focused study and reading on a subject that I have felt the impulse to address with you very plainly and overtly and um and, and it's a subject, and it's been all through the book of Luke that this has been coming up. And it's all actually started to make me think, what subjects are clearly in Scripture that we are, have under-addressed historically for whatever reason? And this is one of those, even though it is very clearly in Scripture, saturated through. It's at the beginning, it's at the end, and it's all the way through. I mean, we're from a fellowship that has a high view of Scripture. What it, what it says... We believe, right? I mean, the story that it tells, the categories of of life that it reveals, the categories of spirituality that it reveals, 
Those things, we believe. We believe them because they are in that scripture. And so, this subject that I want to talk about for the next four weeks is spiritual warfare. Dole's already told you that. And I just want to have a few disclaimers as we begin today. I won't probably repeat these the rest of the series, but I want you to have them now. Spiritual warfare can sometimes be a lightning rod subject for Christians. And there's various reasons for that. Uh, but I want to suggest that the real reason it's, it's, is more because we're unfamiliar with it. We're not familiar with it. And sometimes it's misused to blame everything on. Or, or we see Hollywood's depiction of it and we're like, that, that is not in Scripture. Something like that. It is not because it's not, because it's not in Scripture. It is in Scripture. So what I want to do is ground this conversation beginning to end, but especially today, in Scripture. To examine it, to look at what it is, and by default dismiss what it isn't, right? To dispel any myths about it that might be rolling around in your head that have been implanted there. I don't want any of that. I want to know what it really is, if it's a real thing. And I'm going to ground this in scripture so that we can know it's a real thing and most importantly i want you to be armed i want you to know how to fight and and the biblical language for that that i found that i used for the title is i want this is this is what the bible says is our role there's other ways to say it but i want you to learn how to stand your ground to take your stand in spiritual warfare You're called to it. I'll show you that. And I want you to know how to do it. So my faith goal is for you to leave this series believing that according to Scripture, we don't have to go any farther than Scripture, spiritual warfare is a thing. It's a thing. It's a category of the kingdom life. Just like prayer. Prayer isn't the main thing. Jesus is the main thing, but it's an important thing. Worship. It's not the main thing, but it's a really important thing. Baptism, that's not the main thing, but it's a really important thing. Spiritual warfare, it is not the main thing, but it is a thing, and it's a really important thing. So I want you to leave knowing that. I want you to leave knowing how to engage in taking your stand, and I want you to know that you have a role to play in that. So there's a book that I want to Quote, take a quote from it's by C.S. Lewis. I really want to encourage you over these next four weeks to buy you a copy of this book, The Screwtape Letters. It is a pretty good introduction. It's a creative writing project by C.S. Lewis, okay? But it's, I just think it is a good book that he does a great job of keeping it grounded in Scripture, but showing, kind of pulling the curtain on how spiritual warfare might work. I think you'll find it I could talk about that book for a bit. I just encourage you right now to, to look it up. I want to start with a quote from him in the preface of that book. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, and the other is to disbelieve in their existence. Then he says this, They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. So that is my very conscious and prayerful hope, is that as we walk into this, and I'm just going to do this by sticking with Scripture, that we give this attention, not an excessive or unhealthy amount 
of attention, but we need to stay away from being ignorant of them. And that we strike that balance of knowing this. So let me begin this subject today by, again, we're going to ground it in Scripture. I'm going to start by looking at the story of Scripture, the beginning and the end primarily, and show you that, I mean, the question for today is, is spiritual warfare in Scripture? Okay, that's, that's what I want to talk about. We're going to talk about Satan, devil, angels, both good and evil, in a way that does not fall into either of those errors. That's the goal. So three disclaimers as we, uh, before I do that, accomplish that today. First, this is about warfare. It's war. It is all battle. It is all fight. And I'm mentioning that because there is a movement that is correct in Christianity to see Jesus as a nonviolent king, a promoter of nonviolence, right? He is all about that. I think that's right. And the one scene that people who want to argue about on that from the money changers in the temple notwithstanding, okay, you see this in his life all over the place. He says, love your enemies. He says, when you're slapped, don't slap them back, turn the other cheek. He could have called 10,000 angels in self-defense. He could have. And war would have taken place and he'd have won. And he didn't. He tells Peter to lay down his sword when Peter had, if there is a righteous war, it was that one, fighting for Jesus' life. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Don't make me prove this to you. It's all over scripture. He is a nonviolent king. And that's his desire. That's his ideal for the kingdom in stark contrast to the world. The one clear exception for this is spiritual warfare. It is war. He makes no uncertain terms about it. It's not just some random little scene, you know, that that depicts this. He uses war words, fighting words, military words. He and the rest of the Bible in this one area. You are to love your enemies. You are. People. Because you look deep enough at them, you'll find out you're just like them anyway. That's why we love your neighbor as yourself, because it's you. We've all sinned. Not these unseen beings. Not in one instance are we called to love our spiritual enemy or enemies. We are called to resist. We are called to fight. And you'll be happy to know you will win every single time. And I'll explain why that's true in this arena. So it is about warfare. Second, not everything we face in life is spiritual warfare, right? Not everything is warfare. Not every, the devil isn't around every little corner. You can't blame him for your sin. You can't, you can't do that. We approach things holistically, okay? You've heard me talk about the unholy trinity before, right? That we have these enemies, the world that work against us as we pursue life. There's the world, there's our flesh, and there's Satan, those are all articulated. So sometimes, I mean, we're looking at, we are body, soul, and spirit here. Sometimes a headache is just a headache. And you need a Tylenol, okay? Sometimes when you're struggling with depression, it's, there's chemical reasons for that. 
and you need to go to a doctor. You need to work on balancing physically. Okay, sometimes when you are exhausted or overwhelmed, you actually need exercise. Okay, that's, it. we are physical beings. Sometimes it's that. You have a body. You have a soul too. The soul is the part of us that lives in the world. And we've engaged and we live in the story of the world. The world is broken. It has embedded in it things that are anti-kingdom. They're not for Christ. And so we have wounds, right? And so sometimes we need confession. We need wise counsel, right? That's what we need. But you also have a spirit. Spiritual things are what impact your spirit. And so not everything is spiritual warfare. Having said that, this series is to reveal to you that sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. We should be aware of that as a category. Third, for the Christian, spiritual warfare is not scary. It's not freaky. It's not exotic. It's not what we've seen in the Hollywood movies. It's not the exorcist. It's not that stuff. It is not something that we... In fact, these unseen creatures that we're going to read about in Scripture, they're scared of you knowing about them, of acknowledging them. They're the ones that's scared because you hold the authority. You hold it because you hold Jesus. We'll get into that. So they're the ones that fear us be revealing these unseen creatures beings. So if I teach you anything that starts to make you afraid, if I quote a verse, and I could quote a verse that makes you like, whoa, I'm doing you a disservice. You do not need to be afraid. So if spiritual warfare is real, it's not this crazy exotic thing. It's just normal. Like prayer, like baptism, like worship, spiritual warfare. It's just another subject. And so that makes it useful that's what this series is about it's about it being useful that's what scripture tells us scripture is good for it is useful so this will be helpful if it goes beyond that to scary i'm doing you a disservice and i don't want to do that so it is war it is war not everything is spiritual warfare and this is not scary okay so we'll just have a humble beginning today grounding this kind of getting our theology squared away in scripture just answering this question is spiritual warfare biblical so we go back to the beginning as we often do genesis 1 1 let's just start let's just read the story at the beginning the way it's presented to us right so in the beginning god there's the first character in the story we want to know the character's in the story that are at play here. God is the first one. We know this isn't cheating. We're importing what we know. We've read the end of the book. We know this is the Trinitarian God. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit actually overtly makes an appearance there at the beginning. So anyway, God, in the beginning, God, shortly after creation, he creates this beautiful, incredible, creative setting in which we will live. Then comes humanity mankind this is special this is a special creation of all his creation it is creation but it's special because he gives them they're the image bearers of god god says let us make man in our image to the trinity in some way we are sons and daughters of the most high we're special now time out 
that is where most Christians stop in who are the players on the stage. And maybe not you, maybe academically, if I said, do you believe in Satan or demons or angels, good and bad? You know, do you, do you, believe? you, you might say yes, but where you really ask whether you believe it is how you explain things. Do you have this as a category when you're walking through life? Are you cognizant that there are unseen creatures involved on the stage? Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So this last week, I woke up in the middle of the night. It was about 3.02. I checked the time. And I woke up, and I woke up from this dream where I had failed one of my kids. Now, I'm, I think I've shared this in here. That I mean, I don't want to fail in any arena, uh, but the one place, chief among all others, that I don't want to fail is as a dad. I, I know I have, but I woke up from this scene where I had failed one of my kids, and I am just shaken. I am distraught. It wasn't even a real thing. This didn't actually happen. But emotionally, I am awake. I am wide awake, and I am feeling horrific. And I'm like, okay, it's just a dream. You know, when you're happy, you wake up from something that's a dream. So I, I roll over, and then total recall of real scenes from my life with my kids that I'm now looking at and going, you did that, you did that, and you did that. And I'm interpreting even unintentional things, things that kind of are borderline. I'm interpreting them easily without any effort at all as failure. And I am just in bed looking at my ceiling, all these things going through, and I'm going, that's true. That's, oh, and I am... I am just completely distraught and, I, and I've got nothing. If I only have these characters on the stage, either God or humans, if I only have that belief system, and this is where you find out whether you do, then you are unconsciously or consciously interpreting it with only those categories. So this could be me. If it's me, maybe I'm finally, my conscience got to me in a dream and I'm fine, and these are real things that happen, and I'm finally owning up to my failure as a dad. And I mean, I, that just leaves me with what? Distraught. I need to call him and, thank, and, and apologize and try to pay penance and make up for it and own it. And mostly, I'm just, I am not the picture of peace, joy, and righteousness right now. Because this is, that's true. I, I'm a failure. If it's God, God spoke in dreams. I have Bible for that. Maybe God gave me this dream. And he's just confronting me and he's having me finally. He wants me to own up to my sinfulness and as a dad and confess it. And fit. All I'm left with is oppression and condemnation. That's all I got. But if there is, if there is someone else on the stage operating, especially if this someone else has malicious intent, especially if this other person character on the stage is good at this they've got schemes practiced well rehearsed schemes to produce exactly this kind of fruit and that's a big one in spiritual warfare you know a tree by its fruit like is this from god or from someone else it's an important one to help alert you to it so if there's someone on at the stage this is a way easier thing to deal with in my bedroom that morning Well, chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, we find out, wait a minute, right there at the beginning, 
He doesn't finish his initial story before he lets us know there is another character on the stage. We know it. It's the serpent. He's identified as the serpent. Now, you and I know this is the devil. This is Satan. The Hebrew readers would have known that. I know we're at the beginning of the story, and if you're reading it in order, it's kind of mystery. Who is this serpent? We know. Hebrew people know. Christian theology, I'll point that out here in a minute. We know this is the devil. This is Satan coming in to wreak havoc on God's perfect creation. Side note, it's important for us to realize that while we don't have to be afraid, this is a significant power, this third character on the stage. These are perfect man and woman. They don't have self-esteem issues. They're not worried if their marriage is going to work out. They're, they're completely naked, completely comfortable in who they are, in perfect relationship with God and each other. And this serpent had the ability to tempt them to make a mistake, to fall. So it's just worthy of our... We don't have to be afraid, trust me. It's worthy to know these are... This, this being is good at what he does. Whoever it is, we know who it is. But this serpent comes in and there is this third character on the stage. There's more than just, and, and who is he? He's not God. He's not God. He's not human. Something else. It's right there in our Bible. Is this biblical in Christian theology? So this is going to be developed through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Don't have time to do all that today. So I just want to jump to the other end of the book in Revelation. Okay, the end of the story. Now, just trust me that it is clear by this point there is this other class of beings at a minimum that God created called angels. They show up throughout Scripture. Okay, they show up, they make appearances. And that's an interesting study as well. We know some of their names. We know Gabriel's name. We know Michael's name. We know one named Lucifer. Okay, they have names. So we've, we've learned about these angels. So we're jumping to the end. And listen, there's a lot of debate about Revelation. But most of the debate about Revelation, that's why I, I rarely try to unpack this from Revelation. You rarely hear me preaching through Revelation. Probably something we should because I just said, what are things we neglect even though it's in the Bible? Okay, but uh, suffice it to say that the argument about Revelation has to do with how the end times is going to work. You know, when is it going to happen and what's going to happen before it and what's going to happen after it and is that when you go to heaven or is there, a, you know, post-millennium, premillennialism, praetorism, amillennialism. There's all these different things, isms, okay? That's debatable. We're not concerned with that as we go here. What's not debated about Revelation is, by all those scholars, is this was a vision that John had and he got a trip into, this. they might debate whether it was a real trip or just a vision, uh, behind the veil. Got to pull the curtain of the world behind and he got to look at spiritual reality. No one debates that. So let's look at what he says when he does that. Starting in chapter five, he says, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000s times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So, whoa! Back at the beginning, we learn there is someone else on the stage. It's developed, and by the end, we learn there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Now, 
if it's literal, 10,000 times 10,000, that's 100 million angels. Just in this scene alone. I do not think this is about the math. I'm not promoting that. He's probably just saying, I, I couldn't count them. There's just so many. So there are other characters on the stage. We're just trying to set this stage. Now that we know from the biblical story, it was something else we know from the biblical story is that a company of these angels fell. Okay? You and I, most of us know Lucifer was the leader, angel, that did this. And, and so we, we have this idea that maybe a third, it's from Scripture, a third of these angels fell and aligned with Lucifer. If, this is chapter 12. Just follow me here. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. I'm starting verse 1. A woman clothed with the sun. Now this is, by the way, this is the, you've heard me preach this before. This is the Christmas story behind the veil we know what from the gospels what the christmas story looks like on this side this is what it looked like spiritually i just think that's kind of cool connection it says a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. This is where theologians get that one third. They, They kind of interpret this as maybe that's a third of the angels that fell down to the earth because that's, anyway, that's where they end up. So anyway, regardless, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. That's what it looked like spiritually. We know what it looked like on our side of things. That was King Herod sending his soldiers to go kill all the babies in Nazareth to try to nip this whole prophecy in the bud, right? That, that's what's happening here. He, of course, fails. Jesus is protected by God, so is Mary. And then it says, and there was a war in heaven. Michael, there he is, And his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels, so that's where we get the idea that there's evil angels, fought back. He wasn't strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Here's the bad news. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, full circle here, remember the ancient serpent? This is why in Christian theology, we know we're not just importing that back in there. In the story, that was Satan. That was the devil. And you know what he was doing to Adam and Eve? He was scheming to lead them astray. That's what happened at the beginning of the book. And the same thing is happening here at the end. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Brings the whole narrative. So much more to say in here. But remember, my task today is just to answer the question, is, are these spiritual beings real? And is spiritual warfare real? So if you move through chapter 12, Satan is enraged that Mary and Jesus evade him. And so it ends with this in verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Now, who is that? Jesus' brothers? Like James and, and sisters? Mary's other offspring? We don't have to guess. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's us. If, if that describes you, 
if you hold to the testimony of Jesus, if you're working to obey, then that's, that's what they're doing. So we can see here, the Bible depicts it from beginning to end. There's this other cast of characters working. We don't got to be freaked out. They need to be because of what we're going to study in this series. Because if we identify them as a category and we find out that we're not called to stand our ground for no reason, to take our stand toothless, then their kingdom is going to be majorly assaulted. Maybe the gates of hell won't be able to prevail against us. So I want to pause here. It's really what I wanted to do today, but I want to pluck just three verses, three statements from, you know, that isn't the beginning story and it's kind of epic and mythic and then the ending that's apocalyptic, whatever that means, right? And just some normal followers of Jesus that we've grown to love and trust speaking their testimony that this is real and that we know it's in the Bible. The first one is John, the disciple John. First John five nineteen. he says this. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Let me just ask you directly. Do we? I mean, do we? When you, you're going to wrap up here, we're going to say amen, you're going to walk out, you're going to go to lunch. Do you know you're walking in enemy territory? John says he knows. The church he's writing to, they know. Do we know? Just validation from John. No quibbling. We know that this is how it is. Peter, 1 Peter 5, he says, be self-controlled and alert. Okay, why? Why do we need to be alert? What do we need to be alert about? He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Are you aware of that? Is that a category of life out there? You don't need to be freaked out. It's happening before you were freaked out. So why are you freaked out? They need to be afraid with what we're doing here. Not you. But here it is. John and Peter with one little statement says, yep, I believe this. Paul in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 is such a cool, important text in this. Remember Kyle doing a series in Ephesians when I was on sabbatical once, and he, he unpacked this for us. But we got to get into this under this heading of spiritual warfare. But he says this, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. That's where I get it. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. And in case you're not clear, he doesn't leave it to Peter and John for you to be really sharp. And he, he just says it. For our struggle is not against each other. Y'all do so much struggling against each other down there. You go to war down there against each other. Our struggle is not against each other. Our struggle is against the rulers. You heard me praying these very words. It is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the invisible realms. That's all heavenly means here in the invisible realms. So, let's ask John and Peter and Paul, is spiritual warfare 
biblical? Is it real? Did you believe it's something that's going on? And they did. Now, why would Paul tell us to put on armor if we weren't called to fight? We have a role to play in this too. We have a role to play in this. Okay, that's what I wanted to do today. So before we close, in keeping with my promise that this reality is not scary for us, I want to go back to the first one from John. Because I think left alone, it's a scary point of reference that the whole world is under control of the evil one. I mean, I'm used to singing the whole world is in his hands, you know? So, I shouldn't have brought that up, but there's a way to correspond those. Those both could be true. They are both true. But it's still a little scary when you walk out for lunch to go, ooh, everything's controlled by the evil one. It's not all John says here. He says we know a bunch of things right here in this passage. And it's important to know all of them. So backing up, he says this, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. And get this, never forget this, and the evil one cannot harm him. Then he says, we know that we are children of God and the whole world is under his control. Yeah, you're going to walk out for lunch. Yes, you're walking into enemy territory, but not like this. Nope, just like this. Just like this. Because we, according to Scripture, the same Scripture that says it's control, in control of, everyone, of the enemy, says that if you're born of God, the one born of God, that's Jesus, keeps you from being vulnerable to that evil one. We walk in this world as believers in Jesus with some invulnerability. But not if we make one of the two equal and opposite errors. We don't think we're in a fight. You're vulnerable. If you give them more power and attention than they deserve, you're vulnerable. Both of those are their strategies, their schemes. So I want you to know, you do not need to be afraid. And it goes on and explains what this living in Jesus is. It says, we know that we're children of God, the whole world under control of the evil one. We know also, it's like four things we know here, five. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. That's all we're doing. We're just getting understanding of what's real. We're not having to look at what's real and be afraid. He's giving us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the true God and eternal life. So we're going to ask our elders and our ministers to move here as we finish up. And if you need prayer on any of this, please do. But I want to, I want to end by, by telling you this. The point of this series on spiritual warfare is not because we're called or that we are going to be all about spiritual warfare. We're all about spiritual warfare. We're not pursuing this war. What we're pursuing is God and life. Right? We're pursuing the true God and eternal life. It just so happens that anyone who takes on that pursuit of God and eternal life 
It just so happens there is opposition to that. I hope I don't have to prove that to you. That when you want life and hope and peace and joy and forgiveness and happiness, that it gets invaded and challenged. I hope I don't need to prove to you that there's opposition to that. This is just exposing that opposition. We can see how they scheme and we can fight. And in every instance, what I hope to prove to you with Scripture, in every instance you stand and fight, you will win. The only way you don't win is if you don't fight. That's it. So if you're after that life, if you want that true God, that's another reason to come to us. We will help walk you right into his lap. That's who we're running after, and we want you to run after him. So join me in prayer for this series, and now join me in song to this great God who reigns over all of his creation, seen and unseen. Let's stand and let's sing.